Canon is proud to sponsor No Film School and its coverage of the 2024 Sundance Film Festival, marking its 40th year as an event that showcases both the cutting-edge equipment and the talented filmmakers that bring visions to life. Canon and No Film School partnered on a party and a cinema camera giveaway. Canon celebrated its 14th consecutive year supporting the Sundance Film Festival. And the Canon Creative Studio at 528 Main Street featured panel discussions and the latest Canon products, including the brand new RF24 105mm f2.8 LIS-USMZ lens, a first of its kind. Visit usa.canon.com for all the latest news. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we are. We're live from Sundance in this moment. (laughs) But we're not live because this is a pre-recorded episode, as all podcasts are. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. I'm here with... Ryan Koo, founder of No Film School. And... Joe Light. I'm a writer at No Film School. Joe Light. Actually, both of your names. You just have, like, iconic names. Thank you so much. Like, Joe Light is a superhero. My, mine's know. a cheat, though. I have five names. And if it was like that was the most, that'd be the most pretentious like film director name imaginable, you know? Let's hear were, it. Let's hear all five. I don't want, I don't want the IRS to know this. You know? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Your but identity. yeah, I took, I took the shortest ones, you know, and then I ended up with something like, like Joe's name. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I love, I, I feel like I've been picking up on some like just iconic names at the festival and like name, like people whose names are also their production company. Like it's it's quite a vibe here. Today, we're going to talk about the vibe of the fest this year, the No Film School party that we're having, some exciting stuff happening around that. And then we're also going to talk about the larger film industry now that we're in this post-strike sort of post-streamer boom. And what does that mean for acquisitions, especially because Sundance is really this place where people sort of gauge the health of the industry. And then finally, we're going to talk about movies that we love, movies that we are going to love or hope to love, and some coverage that we have coming up on nofilmschool.com and on the No Film School podcast. So let's kick it off with the vibe of the fest this year. We're one day in. We're recording this on Friday the 19th. Arrived last night, kicked it off with a film and a party. How was it for you guys? Start with Joe. It's you know we've 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 had the same conversation last year, Gigi. So Joe, <laughs> Joe's the newcomer. She got here and hopped right in line with us for a party. Yeah, it was amazing. I've been here previously, I think five times as a volunteer. So that's been my experience in the past is just like being here and working the fest. So to be on this side, I think is super fun and super exciting. But it also I think is cool to know like how the fest works from that perspective too and see all the volunteers and appreciate the volunteers and know what they're doing and why. (laughs) So yeah, the party was great. The air, the thin air, I think hit me immediately. I think you can probably hear it in my voice. So it's been great so far. I've really enjoyed meeting people and just getting back into 
that sort of like networking vibe too. I think overall the, the volunteers is such an important part of Sundance because during the rest of the year in everyday life, you can kind of forget about independent film and you can wonder like, do other people love independent movies like I do? But to have that healthy of a volunteer community who come here to help run the festival and to take tickets and to be ushers at the theater just because they love movies is a great reminder that with all the prognostication about the industry and the health and the things that we're going to talk about, like this is where people come to love movies. And that, and, and I was telling Gigi on the way here, I was having a bit of a dark night of the soul moment on the verge of, of Sundance because I myself, as a writer-director, I was in the Sundance Screenwriters Lab 10 years ago this week. And they say success is a function of expectations. Well, I sure as hell expected to have made more than one movie by 10 years after being in the most prestigious lab that you can be selected for, right? So coming to Sundance, I was just, you know, up at night, wasn't sleeping. I was wondering like, what? what am I doing there? Am I trying to take meetings? Am I going to see movies and be inspired by them? Like, what's my goal for this festival besides, you know, throwing this party that we'll talk about and doing a giveaway? And what are the, what are the goals for me as a filmmaker? And then I woke up and the energy of Sundance like took over, you know, yeah. it was like, yes, Sundance, let's go. Like, yeah, these are the movies that I want to see. These are the people I want to meet. Like, this is what I've always aspired to in my life. And so it was nice to sort of have that uh, character arc in a very compact mm -hmm. manner of like, I don't even want to go. I'm tired. Yeah. And then like, let's get this party started. Yeah. Can yeah. I can I say too, my first movie was this morning. I almost cried during like the, the pre-roll picture that they're showing right now with like pictures from Sundance in like 1980s and 1990s. And it made me very emotional, honestly, because that is what it's all about. It's being here to support independent film and get inspiration and be with all these creative people. Yeah. I, I too was surprised. The first group of people that I met in the context of this party that we went to last night, which is sort of part of the whole approach to the festival is you get yourself in the mix meeting people. It, they were, they were simply people who wanted to come and watch films. They, I think, six years ago, started a group chat called A24 Sluts. And I was like, I love you guys. And their enthusiasm for, for filmmakers made, and, and just being here celebrating independent films or films that are taking risks made, was, was invigorating. The other thing that always leaves me feeling energized coming out, out of this is the frenetic energy of the festival and just the fact that you are crashing into people in this industry, running into people who you haven't seen for 15 years. My partner ran into somebody who we had a meeting with 15 years ago when we found their first email today. <laughs> and it, you just never know who you're going to meet while you're waiting in line, a new friend or reconnecting with somebody. And that I think is such a powerful way to uh, invigorate your career and just you know, continue to build these relationships because it really is a long-term marathon of a career that we're all in as filmmakers. And it's the people who we continue to build relationships with. And when the timing lines up, like that's kind of when that magic happens. But you have to build these relationships over many, many Sundances, many years, many projects, even projects that sometimes don't come to fruition. And so it's pretty powerful to have everyone in one place here getting pumped about 
films that are different and weird. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point for like why come to Sundance in person? Because obviously in the pandemic, Sundance went online, it went virtual. You could watch a lot of movies online. The big change for this year is that most of those online screenings, I think, are on the second half of the festival. So they still want you to come here in person, which is a smart hybrid approach, I think, because if everything was available online at the beginning to everybody, then why come to Park City and why experience all these things that we're talking about? So I think, I think that's, they've landed in a good place of making these movies more accessible to people who can't make it to Park City because Park City can be very expensive during this week. Our own Airbnb was apparently double booked, which I found out the <laughs> night before. And you know, no wonder right. you had a dark night of the soul. You're like, we're going to oh, be yeah. sleeping in the snow. No. That probably. Well, yeah, we're recording this live from the snow at yeah. Sundance. Thankfully, we we were able to find another place. And, but yeah, I think I think like building relationships, as we all know from having been locked up in the pandemic for a year or two, is very difficult to do online and being face-to-face feels even more important than ever after all of that. So yeah, happy to be here with you guys. I, I have a, I think a perfect segue into another reason that we're here, you know, getting people together, building community. No, uh, no, we're obviously no film school. We're here for people who both went to film school and didn't go to film school. Uh, but here at Sundance, there are a lot of places for people who did go to film school, the the NYU party, the USC party, the AFI party, insert the rest of the names there. So what are we doing this year that's a little different? This is something I've been wanting to do for years, ever since I found out that those film schools were having celebrations for their alumni who had movies in the festivals, which they absolutely should do. But those are closed parties. You have to have gone to that school or you have to you know, be on the filmmaking team with the movie that's there. And so obviously at No Film School with us and our mission to democratize filmmaking and to share news and education globally outside of New York and Los Angeles and then the insular film industry, I wanted to throw a quote unquote alumni celebration for everyone who didn't go to film school at Sundance. So while the film school grads get to have their parties and cocktails that you know we would celebrate for everyone who didn't have the opportunity or couldn't afford to go to film school. So like many ideas, it just wasn't practical for us to do. And there were some conversations that Gigi and I had last year that sort of lit a fire under me. And I said, okay, we should really do this. And then thankfully with our exclusive sponsor this year of, of all of our No Film School coverage, Canon, we are throwing a No Film School alumni celebration. Now, by the time you listen to this, we will have had it. By the time, as we are recording this, we have not. So I'll just say it was the best party ever. Best party ever. You know, everything was (laughs) perfect. amazing. Thank you so much. Exactly. But, so yeah, we wanted to celebrate not only filmmakers who didn't go to film school. I mean, obviously, we'll celebrate ones who did. But I think one of the things about Sundance that I also learned in the 10 years since being in the lab, I've, I've come almost every year since then. And sometimes at Sundance, it feels like the filmmakers themselves aren't prioritized enough to my taste. And by that, I mean that a lot of what's driving the you know, the people who are throwing the parties and the people who are staying in the nicest houses are the people who are around the making of movies. They are not the ones who actually make the movies. You have a lot of companies and agencies and 
you know, the VIP parties and closed doors and it, it while Sundance is a discovery festival of new filmmaking voices, all of the, the uh, apparatus around it sometimes feels like, you know, filmmakers are given short shrift. So we wanted to throw a party celebrating filmmakers specifically and who better to do that with than with Canon, someone who makes tools that we've all used as filmmakers and someone that we launched our podcast at Sundance with in 2016 as a partner and someone with whom No Film School probably wouldn't exist because the big early success with No Film School, the way that I was able to reach an audience when I was starting this 14 years ago was Canon's 5D Mark II camera. And I wrote an ebook about how to use that to make cinematic images. And that was downloaded millions of times. And so it's just, it's, it's come full circle in, in some ways for us to be throwing a party with them and to even further help filmmakers. We are giving away a descendant of the Canon 5D Mark II, the Canon R5C, which shoots 8K video and you know has an internal cooling system, so it's, it's not going to overheat and downsamples to 4K. You can use cinema lenses and it's got a great dynamic range and fits in the palm of your hand and you know, technology has come a long way since that, that happy accident that was the 5D Mark II. So we're giving one of those away at the party, or we gave one of them away at the party. And the person who got it loved it so much. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to spike the party with a bunch of entries for myself. Yeah. This is a camera I would like to have. But again, with our ethos of not wanting to be the closed door place, you know, open and, and, and democratizing and accessible, we're also giving away a Canon R5C for filmmakers who can't make it to Park City in celebration of Sundance. So as you listen to this, as long as you're listening to it, within a a few days of this podcast coming out, while Sundance, the film festival is still going, you can register to win a Canon R5C by going to nofilmschool.com slash Sundance24. So get registered and I hope you win it. And I hope when you win that camera, that you use it to make a movie that gets into Sundance 27. How amazing would that be? That'd be such a great full circle of the full circle. Yeah. Circling back. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to, well, I know we're in the future talking about the past, but I am very excited to see what what comes of this party because people have come out and reached out, especially like friends of friends who are listeners. And it's so cool to see our listeners and our readers come together and, and create, I think there is a community to be had here, even though we, you know, met in a virtual or audio space. Well, let's use this as a moment to talk about the things that we've seen, the things that we've loved. We're, we're one day, a day and a half into the festival We've had some opportunities to see screeners, uh, but what are the films that you are excited to celebrate and excited to see and some that you may have already seen? Okay, I'll go first. I caught Freaky Tales this morning, so we could probably chat about that. Yes. Um, All three of us are Freaky Tales freaks. (laughs) I already saw In a Violent Nature, which is one of the midnight films, which I actually really, really liked. And then I just got out of Your Monster, which is like a, 
I also midnight film, I think, I believe. You're you're really skewing into the midnight space. I, and I, I love to. that. I have to. I love them so much. And I've seen a few shorts already that have been really good. And I'm hoping to talk to those filmmakers hopefully later in the week, even later in the future than, mm-hmm. than you're hearing this now. So keep an eye out for that. Hello, listeners. This is Gigi chiming in, interrupting your regular podcast listening as We talked about a movie that we are not allowed to talk about yet. There's a little thing in the industry called an embargo, which means uh, we hold our thoughts and feelings and reviews about a film until it is released uh, in a particular way. So if you do a little sleuthing, you'll find more content about this film in particular on the website written by our very own Joe Light. Apologies. But this is a transition into the second part of the conversation where we talk about horror that is reimagining traditional tropes, genre, et cetera. Back to our conversation. It's fascinating that you mentioned that film as a sort of reimagining of this genre because a film that, that I finished a screener of today and we attempted to watch last night, but we got home very late and um, we're sort of digesting our Crunchwrap Supremes and had to pause. But uh, I finished it today, Handling the Undead, which is a, a Norwegian film directed by Thea, and I apologize in advance, Heivestandal. And I'll get it right when we have her on the podcast <laughs> later this week, so be sure to check it out. But this is a reimagining of, you know, what happens when people who die come back and it is beautiful it it takes a beat to get into but by the time i finished i was crying in i in in a way that was so unexpected i was so moved and it was such a powerful you know examination of this and one of the qualms i always have with zombie films and i love zombies i love mm. the genre i live for 28 days later which i think is just a great example of like you don't have to have the fanciest camera in the world to make a great film. Mm -hmm. I always want more of the quotidian of what it's like to deal with this situation. My, I stopped watching The Walking Dead because I was like, this is too much drama. Let's just get into the, like the infrastructure and the dynamics of this Mm -hmm. and handling the undead. uh, It is a contained feature, but it does dive into the specifics in a way that was like so fascinating. It was such a beautiful sort of meditation on grief. And I am so excited to dig into Thea's perspective on how she created this film because it is a, it's like an auteur's perspective. There's not a single shot that is used um, again. And, and I just know that I'll learn a lot from, from that conversation. So I'm very excited uh, for that conversation and for that film. The other project that just has stuck with me, like it feels like I am still digesting it and I've watched it a week ago, is How to Have Sex, which is Molly Manning Walker's directorial debut, feature directorial debut. However, she is a DP. She had a film here last year called Scrapper that uh, is just a delight. and. This film has shook me to my core and I've never felt more seen of a sort of like coming of age in the throes of young partying and what that means and the sort of 
indifference around your body and yourself. And so I'm really excited to talk about that, and especially because she is a DP as well. So I think that'll be a really fascinating conversation. So those are two highlights for me. How about you, Ryan? The film that I really responded to so far, and this is, keep in mind, this is early in the festival. So as you're hearing this, we will have seen many more movies, but uh, it's a film, it's a feature titled Love Me by uh, Sam and Amy. I think it's Sukaro, but Kim Yutani, the director of programming at Sundance, introduced them at the world premiere as Sam and Amy. So I haven't heard their last name yet, so you can't blame me for not knowing. (laughs) So this is a a very unconventional love story between Stephen Young and Kristen Stewart play the leads. It takes place in the future after humanity has blown itself up and there are no more humans. And it's, I mean, the first two thirds is basically all VFX. I mean, there's so much interesting filmmaking going on in this, but it's it's a love story between uh, a satellite and a buoy in the ocean. And you know, it's the it's the it's the future, so they both have AI chips, and they meet each other, and they study humanity, and fall in love. And it's one of those movies where it's it's expressly asking questions about the meaning of life and and love and relationships. And by using that unconventional pairing, it gives you a fresh perspective on it. And it's just one of those movies where 10 minutes in, I found myself thinking, like, this is what I come to Sundance for. This is not something that's based on a true story or existing intellectual property or a graphic novel. You know, this is an original idea that is audacious and creative. And it's just something I hadn't seen before. You know, you're, you're, you're sort of doing like shot reverse shot between these animated satellite and uh, robot buoy. And it ha- you know, it's, it's really interesting from a filmmaking perspective because the, the, the famous Kuleshov effect of just, you know, you putting your emotions in the, in the context onto a, the same expression of a face that works even if it's not a human face, right? And um, so yeah, there, there, there's just really fascinating filmmaking going on. It's a debut feature. A future-based debut feature. Exactly. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, sometimes these movies that are that ambitious, maybe the reach exceeds the grasp a little bit in the second half. But we are not here to be critics. We are not here to give films grades. We're here to be inspired as filmmakers. And this was a story that had me thinking about my own work like, yeah, Push it. Be more original. And that's what I want to see at Sundance. The other thing I'll say about it, and this doesn't have anything to do with it being uh, a satellite and a buoy, is just I've seen the evolution of what the industry will fund and what is seen as acceptable in uh, film relationships on screen. And as a Asian-American man, pretty much up until Crazy Rich Asians, I had never seen someone who looked like me be the romantic lead in a movie. And if they were, this is looking at you, Romeo Must Die starring Jet Li and Leah, then we weren't even allowed to kiss the girl, you know? So, because they, they shot that and then the test audiences didn't like it. So yeah, as, as, as a, you know, race that's been emasculated traditionally or not seen as, as a romantic interest to have Stephen Young portraying a romantic lead in in a racial relationship in a way that has nothing to do with race, right? The movie has nothing to do with race. He just gets to play a guy who's in a relationship with someone. 
it, that, that was not lost on me. It was great to see. It's probably not something you're going to hear other people talking about, which is one of the nice things about the way that society has changed. And there's been such a rise in the popularity of you know, Asian filmed content. But just a, just a few minutes ago, you know, that was not something that you would have seen on screen. So that was another bonus to that movie that uh, I'd like to shout out. There's an interview coming out tomorrow with director, screenwriter, Amru Al-Qadi, who is the visionary behind the film Layla. The interview also includes the actors Bilal Hasna and Louis Gray Terex. And one of the things that really stood out to me in that interview, in addition to it being an interview that I think is really important for anyone who's ever wondering how they can be a more actor-friendly director, because Amru is also a performer and an actor. But one of the biggest things that stood out to me was how Amru stuck to the perspective of Layla, the main character, who is a non-binary drag queen and person who lives in the in-between in many, many different ways. And Amru continued to get feedback that was like, well, we need to see more of this other character, this love interest who's, you know, a more heteronormative person. And Amru was like, well, no, because this isn't their story. And I think one thing that is very normal in this industry when you're sort of entering a space or a perspective from a less represented group is putting pressure for it to represent the entire experience. But you really have to, as a filmmaker, kind of stick to what the story is. And it's not fair for a, you know, one film that is happens to be a film that's in the LGBTQ community that doesn't have to do everything. It doesn't have to speak to every single experience. And so this does feel like a festival that is creating space for that and creating and just, you know, films that are now just accepting this normal, what should be normal and what is now this new normal and how we have evolved as a culture and as a society. And it's really exciting and refreshing. And I, I just, I just love to hear that. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the festival was an offshoot of the labs, not vice versa. Robert Redford started in 1981, the Sundance Labs, to help filmmakers outside the mainstream tell their stories. And, you know, one of the first movies was El Norte, made from that lab. That, that was a Spanish language movie about immigrants that you know, the studios were certainly not going to be funding then. And the reason that he purchased the USA Film Festival and then rebranded at Sundance was because if you can get these movies made, that's great, but you also need a, a pedestal to put them on and a place to exhibit them and a way to lift them up. And that's the purpose of Sundance. You know, what you were just talking about there was to, to be independent from, you know, what, what other trends or norms or what is considered to be, you know, commercially viable. So yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to hear that. And I think the nice thing about us doing this podcast is, you know, we get to focus on what we like and what inspired us because it's not all amazing. You know, there are always movies you see at Sundance and it's like, why is this here? Is it politics? Is it this, that, or the other reason? And, you know, movies, some movies don't get good reviews 
which maybe we can segue into the movie that all three of us saw. We all saw Freaky Tales, the new film from Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who from Half Nelson all the way up to a more recent Marvel movie that I didn't see. But, you know, from from scrappy indie to major blockbuster, they've directed everything and, you know, have been indie darlings and, and recently, you know, studio directors. I saw it's I, let's let's talk about this. Yeah. So it's a it's kind of like an anthology of shorts. It's four parts. Each one is shot in a different style. And it's it's got sort of a Tarantino-esque vibe tonally. You know, it's it's violent, it's pulpy, campy, set in Oakland in the 1980s. And the interesting thing that I found about the movie, we can talk about the movie itself, but also is it's like, how do you talk about it afterwards, right? Because everyone says, was it good? And it's like, you know, I liked some things about it. I didn't like other things about it. And then today I saw IndieWire gave it a D plus. And I don't like, I, I think this is a movie that, is looking for distribution. I mean, Macro made it, so it might already have some, but it's, you know, these are big bets that companies are taking. These are big swings that directors are taking. And I don't think that, you know, critics should not say what they honestly think. But while I had mixed feelings about that movie, I also wasn't like, that's a D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how did you guys feel about it watching it? I think I liked it a little bit more than you two. But I'm also just a raging Pedro Pascal fan, so I I will love anything that he does. What I said to Gigi earlier is I, I just don't really vibe with anthology films, and this felt a little anthology-y to me, and that it was told in those four parts, and they're sort of separate in the separate style and things like that. I just, it's hard for me to get invested in it. And what I also said to you earlier is, I think there's a, and sort of what you're saying, I think there's a really good movie in there that I would really want to see. And we're not going to talk about spoilers, I'm sure, but there's a really great finale. And I'm like, I want more of what this is. And I want more of these characters and this conflict. Yeah, I think we could probably lose the first part, to be honest. That was my least favorite part. And it's like the risk you run, I feel like with an anthology film, right? Is, yeah. is some of them are going are gonna to turn out better than others. Mm. And then almost everyone in the audience is going to want for their own tastes yeah. more of one part of it than yeah. the other. Yeah. And for me, it's Pedro, obviously. That, that um, one was really strong, though. I really, the Pedro one is like, give is. me that feature. And yeah. there's a really cool cameo in that part. And I really liked the little discussion that they were having there. It was just really fun and funky. And... I think that like what he's doing in that part is really compelling. It's a very common trope, like the last job and get out of what you're doing. And it, it was just fun to watch that part. And then you have the sort of final part where things are coming together. And that felt pretty good to me. But yeah, I just, it just, it just, I wanted it to come together better or like be more cohesive. And it's just hard to do when you're telling or disparate stories, basically. Yeah. I I have trouble disliking films, I mm-hmm. think, because I'm like, you did it, you guys, you yeah. did it. And, and this film, what I connected with most was it really felt like a, a love letter to the East Bay, which is where I'm from. The theater where the stories intersect, I have been to a million times. I literally grew up on that street. So there was this immediate nostalgia play that that hit me deep. And 
the pros and cons of an anthology film like this is that you choose one. And ironically, it was the first story that I liked the most being a, you know, kid who grew up in Piedmont and Oakland who would go to iMusicast, which was the early aughts version of Gilman, and be part of the like ska punk scene there. I would still wear my Abercrombie clothes. So I was kind of like walking this line and switching a little bit. But but I I had not seen that specific microculture ever. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And it's so specific. And and they just kind of nailed it and went all out. So I, I appreciated that. To me, the thing that was really tough was the violence and how... I just don't think violence at that level is funny. And it really leaned into the gore. And it, it I feel like it sort of takes away from things. And, and it's no secret that the antagonist throughout this anthology series is a group of like skinhead Nazis. And to me, that feels like, yes, Nazis are bad, obviously. But is this an interesting choice? Is this a nuanced choice? Is this... And it just felt like such a simple bad guy that it could have, when it could have been just a, a way more nuanced exploration of this particular point in history in this very like microcosm of a of a place where there's so many cultures coming together and clashing that it felt like a missed opportunity and like there was another film in there that I would have loved even more. I think you just helped me understand what I felt about it in a way because what we come here to see is, is risk-taking as filmmakers. And this is a risk for the financier. It's a risk for them and their film career. You know, it, I think it is a story that has a lot of touch points with them personally. And all of that, I love. The idea of doing an anthology with, with celebrity actors and you know, an anthology where everything is, is each thing is, is, each component is stylistically different. You know, the letterboxing is different. It, there's some nostalgia, some fun nostalgia in there. I like all of that. But when, as you're talking about the, the bad guy being Nazis, that's where all of a sudden it doesn't feel like it's taking risks and it's taking the easy way out. And especially when the people on the other side are all essentially marginalized people, whether they're uh, punks or they're gay or they're black or whatever it is, it's like, well, yeah, we're obviously going to root for them against Nazis. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. maybe that's where the risk taking what wasn't up to what I had hoped for. But at, at the end of the day, still, it's like, I'm still so glad that I was there and I got mm, to see it. Yeah. And like, it was a really fun movie. Yeah. Like it's, 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 you know, the crowd was super into it. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, acknowledge the shortcomings, but it's a really, really, this, maybe this is a segue to talking about the industry. It's such a tough industry. And I, my own feeling in my own career, trying to get things made is that it's tougher now than it ever has been. I mean, it was probably tougher before movie cameras were invented to get a movie made. But other than that, <laughs> you know, it feels like everyone is wondering what is the film industry? You know, we had a lot of downtime with the pandemic where things were really expensive to make and very few things were getting made. And we went right into a strike. Then, you know, even after the, the writer's strike was over, the actors were still on strike and then it's the holidays and now it's Sundance. During that time, the, the amount of content the streamers were funding has also dropped a lot because they're going to have their contraction. There's going to be fewer of them. And we've sort of come to the other side of peak TV. 
So where we are now at Sundance 2024 in the beginning of the year, coming off of a, a year that was mostly gone to, to the strikes, is like, what is the health of this industry? And are people uh, watching movies? Are people financing movies? And that's one of the things that Sundance is a bellwether for because this is the number one acquisition market in all of America for films. And this is where companies that have big checkbooks come to make their big acquisition for the year. You know, this is where Netflix bought Fairplay. This is where Apple bought Coda and then went and spent more money campaigning for an Oscar for that film, which they won, than they did buying it for 20 million, right? Like this is, if you have those big acquisitions, then people can come out of this festival and say, okay, I can go get that movie finance now because that's potentially on the table. And if you don't have these acquisitions, then everyone's going to be worried. So as we sit here recording this, like that's the big question. And that's why I'm like, oh, I don't like seeing a D plus because like we're all in this community together. We're all trying to get movies made. It's harder than ever. And, you know, something like Freaky Tales, it has commercial potential, right? Absolutely. I thought like my husband is going to want to watch this movie. He he loves uh, so many of these actors. I also say like Angus Cloud popping up was like seeing a ghost. I did not know he was in this movie. And so it was so wonderful to see him in this, even like very briefly. It does feel like we're in this sort of free fall within the industry. It's so easy for it to feel bleak, bleak, bleak. And I'm really hoping that by the time this comes out, there will be a big, exciting acquisition. We're going to regroup on the podcast in a couple of days. So we'll have some more news. I do think... The silver lining is seeing so many films here that really should not exist. Like they, you know, we all know that movies don't want to be made. And and it's really easy to also like look at the industry and just feel so disheartened. But then I see some of these projects and I'm just like, oh, thank God, like somebody made this movie, even if it's not totally working for us. Like to your point about risk tape, risk taking. Like we need to continue to do that as filmmakers and be like pushing this giant boulder up this hill. Otherwise, you know, we'll end up with just boring vanilla, safe, safe content, which we can't. We can't. Mm -hmm. Also, just want to shout out Docs. Watch some Docs, please. (gasps) Yeah. Uh, I was talking to someone from Hulu acquisition last night and even they were like, Ooh, we're struggling. It's bad. Because I even asked them, I was like, did you step in a little bit to fill the void in the strikes? And they were like, no, opposite. It's bad, basically. Wow. So it's just because no one watches them, like in terms of like their numbers. So there is a neon doc called Seeking Mavis Beacon that I screened beforehand. And I'm speaking with the filmmakers in a couple of days and that this will also be coming out soon. That is a bold doc. That is a doc that not only is sort of exploring and taking a lot of risks about this like current digital state and world that we're in, following or seeking out the 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 black woman who was the original model of the Seeking Mavis or of the Mavis Beacon teaches typing mm-hmm. software, who got paid $500 and never saw another check. And then, of course, the company was sold for millions and millions of dollars. But that is also a documentary that turns the mirror on itself as filmmakers, as documentary filmmakers and consent. And it's fascinating. So I think that is a a boundary-pushing doc. It's in the next session. 
it's in the next section. And uh, that is one that I, I hope has a big release tied to it because it is bold and it's exciting and it's asking questions, especially when we're in this age of like glorified docuseries, true crime. Like I think it's one that is really turning the mirror in a powerful way. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Neon does amazing stuff. I'm I'm almost always behind what they do. I can't, I just, I don't want to say a blanket statement, but like I love neon films. They're so amazing. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been a really A24 dominated festival and independent film sphere for several, many, many years now. And I think from what the trades are saying is that, you know, they're doing bigger movies. They've got Civil War coming out, which is a big budget action movie. And it, it it's nice to have another company like Neon sort of treading in the same waters and yeah, like those, those, those places are, are risk takers. That's what we're talking about here, you know? And that's what, again, that's what Redford started the labs for. It was to encourage risk taking because most of the film industry is trying to be safe. You know, <laughs> it's like trying to do the thing that your boss isn't going to get mad for you at if you, if that movie didn't work, you know, with, whoa, it was this cast and it was based on that thing and this bestseller. So it's been, it's been fun here to see risk-taking. I'm glad you brought up docs. The other thing I want to bring up is shorts. Love. Love the shorts. I haven't had a chance to see any shorts yet. I'm definitely going to some of them. And we, coming up on the No Film School podcast, we're going to have a senior shorts programmer, Mike Plant, who has been programming shorts here for like 15 years or more. I can't even think of, you know, how many shorts has this guy seen, right? He's doing God's work. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I, you know, the reason I want to have him on and is, is that obviously as hard as it is to make a short, it's way harder to make a feature. Usually you need so much more resources and financing and getting a short made is, is more relatable and accessible for all of us filmmakers. So let's not forget about those. We'll have him on the pod coming up. And yeah, it's hopefully we'll see more, more risk taking at the festival. Once again, register to win a Canon R5C at nofilmschool.com. No risk to you. Sorry. To- <laughs> no risk to you. Uh, nofilmschool.com slash Sundance24. And we will be back soon. Yes. Our voices will probably be a little more ragged. I know. (laughs) I'm so sorry in advance to our listeners. But thank you for listening. And you can get more No Film School and Sundance coverage at nofilmschool.com. We have folks covering from the ground, folks covering from other grounds outside of Park City. Uh, We are also available across any platform where you can listen to your podcasts, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow us on social at No Film School across all of our platforms. We are posting in real time to keep you updated here in Park City if you are not here. And of course, if you are here, come say hello to us. We love you. Thank you for listening. 